Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, the comedy podcast for creators of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thank you so much for being here. I say a comedy podcast for creators of any variety. Let me explain that a little bit. You might be out of the entertainment industry or not in the comedy world, but you can still learn something from comedians and, and people who are appearing on this podcast because... Though you cannot emulate the skills that they are talking about and explaining how to do, you can emulate their drive or their discipline, and that can help you create things in your world, in your industry, and your day-to-day life. So I hope you are inspired when you hear episodes like today's, and I hope it teaches you something, you learn a little something from our guests about how to create something or how to move forward and trying to put something together. We have a great guest today. It's Liz Mealy. More on her in a second. I do want to say a big thank you to everyone who responded to last week's episode and gave feedback. I really appreciate the feedback. I thought the timing of last week's episode was crazy because I didn't know any of the stuff that came out last week involving Harvey Weinstein or Ain't It Cool News and Screen Junkies and venture capitalists. I didn't know any of that stuff was going to come out. I had not heard rumors about those people. So the fact that this episode about harassment came out the week that these huge, huge stories came out as well was very, well, it says something about where we are as people, as a nation. And I think it's way past time that we have a discussion about what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, and I am so inspired of the women who are coming forward. They, Somebody has mentioned that these women who are coming forward have everything to lose and nothing to gain, and they are coming out, and it's just the strength that women are showing is so powerful and quite frankly, inspiring. I'm very appalled at the treatment that they have received over the years. In some of these cases, decades, women were being mistreated by people. But goodness gracious, these women are so strong. And it's just amazing to see that aspect. That's, that has been something that's encouraging me about the future, about where we can go. It's the beginning of healing. And I I think these women should be applauded. And I think that moving forward, we all need to get on the same page. As people have been saying, this is not a left or right issue. It's not a political issue. This is a human issue. There are people who are mistreating people and abusing their power. There are people who think they are doing innocent things with people within their community or in their workplace, and they aren't. They just, it's, the behavior is not innocent. They are hurting people in small ways, maybe, but definitely in big, 
large, traumatic ways as well. And that stuff needs to end. And we need to start having healthier discussion about harassment and treatment of people in the workplace, in our theater spaces, just in our culture. We need to start having these discussions about the right way to behave. And I feel like this is the perfect time to start talking about that because we owe it to the women who are showing the bravery they're showing in speaking about the topic. We, we can't let their coming forward and then getting the crap that they're getting online happen in vain. The response to what they're saying and they're coming forward has to be improvement and progress. We have to get better. Now let's move on to a lighter topic. A lighter topic is today's guest. She's a stand-up comedian. Justina and I had the pleasure of seeing her perform in Brooklyn, and she's fantastic. She's been alive at Gotham, and she's had an interesting life. She started comedy at a young age, and she talks about that. She's been on the on the touring circuit for a long time, and she's actually currently performing uh, on a military tour. She's in Cuba right now. I think today is the last day that she's in that. She's got a lot of stuff to talk about. So here's my chat with Liz Mealy. You two are living in Brooklyn. I am. And I don't know where you originally are from. Where are you originally from? Jersey. Uh, why do you say it like that? Because I'm supposed to. <laughs> a lot of great people are from Jersey. Yeah, uh, but it's like it's like an accident or an exception. <laughs> you know what I mean? If somebody great comes from New York, people are like, of course. But if somebody great comes from Jersey, they're like, How, how'd they do that? <laughs> oh, they got out. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. That's true. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> How long have you been doing stand-up? Uh, 15 years. Yeah, it shows when I've seen you, and I feel like I've been following you forever, but I haven't been following you for 15 years. But Yeah, I mean, well, it's because the weird thing about comedy is when you start, you can just call yourself a comedian. <laughs> so it's like, you know, people, do that, yeah. people don't say they're an architect if they start their first year of undergrad. So the first time you go on stage, it's like, you're an undergrad and mm-hmm. some people it takes four years. Some people it takes 10 years. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I really, do, I mean, I got on TV six years in, that was okay. my first time on television, but All I right. still don't, I wouldn't really want anybody to quote me before 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you oh, know okay. what I Like I really, I would say around nine, 10 years, maybe even 11. Did I start to really like, understand what I do, like what I do, have Mm -hmm. a, have a grasp on it. So it's like, it's just a, you know, in some ways you decide how quickly you're going to grow. Oh, interesting. I've heard, you know, that sort of thing a lot before. I mean, I guess, uh, Louis CK has said it was like 12 years in when he felt like maybe it was a little less than that, but it just seemed like it was several years in and he was working and doing fine, but he didn't really think he was saying anything of substance until 12 years in. And then Steve Martin starts his book saying he spent four years learning and four years refining and then four years of wild success. So I guess it's kind of like, I guess, eight years before he really hit it. 
Um, and it can just be different for everybody. And you're saying it's kind of defined by their level of progress or how they progress? Yeah, I mean, it's a mixture of a bunch of stuff. Like, for right. me, I started when I was 16. Like, what did A, I have to talk about at 16? <laughs> that was a value, yeah. <laughs> a value, but truthfully, like, I, I didn't want anybody to see me. Like, mm. it sounds weird, but, like, I wanted to be a comedian. I wanted the attention, but I didn't want people to actually see who I was because I didn't like myself, and I didn't know mm. who I really was, and... You know, I knew I had opinions, but I didn't know what they were. So in a lot of ways, I discovered who I am and built up the ability to show who I am in front of people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I, there's some advantages to starting young because it's a scary, vulnerable process that, mm -hmm. you know, there's some resilience you have when you're younger and mm -hmm everything kind of sucks, or at least from my childhood, teenage years, everything sucked. And then you but, can, I guess, start getting those skills in those, like, early stage jitters out of the way, but also just, like, getting some of the skills down before... Yeah, but there's, there's different priorities. Like, uh, I have really close friends that started when they were 30, mm -hmm. and, you know, they're like, I have friends that are married with houses and real jobs and money and mm -hmm. I'm going to go play make-believe. But I was 16 and <laughs> it was weird to be a 16-year-old doing it because there's not a lot of people doing it. But at the same time, when's the best time to play make-believe? When's the best time to be in a band? When's the best time to fail and have fewer repercussions? So there was a hmm. benefit to me starting when I was 16, but also there right. was a lack of awareness of how life works and what thought processes are and what being a real person means all at the same time. So it's like there was definitely advantages, but there was a lot of disadvantages that took me a lot longer to figure out because I was learning both comedy and how to be a person all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you had a lot working against you and you do bring uh, a lot into the, the discussion here. Uh, I was just listening to a podcast where they were pointing out that a lot of when it comes to musicians, uh, they were talking about a rock band and uh, a lot of people, we tend to like people when they are young and hip and good looking. And, you know, when a 20 year old is writing songs, think about the stuff you wrote when you were 20. I mean, most people would cringe if they read what they wrote when they were 20 years old. And they're, that's like a lot of our pop stars are like 20, you know, and and so uh, when they get to be more wise and have more experience, that's kind of when they're out of style. Well, it's also like they're they're creating in a bubble. So, mm -hmm. you know, what problems does Taylor Swift have? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And not mm -hmm. even to put her down, but she doesn't have the same problems I do. Like... Mm -hmm. And just like my 16-year-old problems weren't the same as my friends that were 30 and their problems. And my problems now at 32 are very different from my friends that are 32, but they've had a career for 15 years. And mm -hmm. I've just honestly really started mine the last couple of years. Like you, you have to understand that everybody, that age kind of doesn't mimic exactly what things are because they ha create their own bubbles. So I've been right. in this la la land comedy bubble so my problems are different than somebody that has three kids and is just trying to feed them and i take care of myself you right. know what i mean which which has its own struggles but 
most of them I created myself. Like <laughs> it took me a long time to realize that I was intelligent enough that I probably could have gotten a good job. But what is a good job? What is what is a career to me? Like I can tell you right now, I make a living, but mm-hmm. I don't have a I don't have a career yet. And that's weird to say at 32. That's weird to say after doing stand up for 15 years. Mm-hmm. I hope that I am building a career, but it takes a lot longer to build a career in comedy for the majority of comedians, there's yeah. always exceptions, than most people. And I, I think that takes a long time to even know what your career looks like. Because some people just want money, and some people just want freedom, and some people just want fame. And right. it's taken me a long time, because I started so, started so long young, what my, what my definition of a career is. That's interesting. So what would your definition of being a a career you say you don't have a career but yet you know you did say you were 5 6 years in when you got your first tv credit yeah i mean i make a living i i mm-hmm. mean i separate those things distinctly which is mm-hmm. i can't take a break mm-hmm. or i don't pay my rent there's you know what i mean there's no all the momentum is m- me I mean, there's people that email me. I definitely get things from recommendations. It, my career in the last, I would say, four years um, has flowed a little bit easier and things come to me a bit easier and people know who I am and I have a fan base and I have albums out. I, I get royalty money every month from being played on Sirius. I've been mm-hmm. on TV several times. I have some momentum. Mm-hmm. But truthfully, if I stopped emailing people and putting myself out there and stopped touring, it wouldn't take long for it all to go away. Rather mm-hmm. than when you have a career, you know, Dave Chappelle can take five years off from making a special and mm-hmm. nobody's like, fuck that guy or remember that guy. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, he released something new or hey, he's back to it. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a career to me. Mm-hmm. So I would I would like to continue mm-hmm. to build my fan base. I would like to have more control over my schedule. You know, I still take 90, 85, 90% of the stuff thrown my way because I don't know when my next gig is going to be. And I don't know where money's coming from every couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm doing financially well right now. And I feel very fortunate because things got a little weird last year, taking some risks. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I would say every, you know, my goal was to have three months be kind of like three months of bookings and then three months of savings. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have that, I have about four months of bookings and about three to four months of savings. To me, this is like the richest I've ever been, yeah. but I would like to have a savings that I don't have to dip into on a bad month. And I would like to, you know, not have to introduce myself to comedy clubs. Like they would just mm. know who I am. Like there's a bunch of stuff that, I don't yet have the luxury of, and that's going to take bigger TV credits or, you know, a special. Yeah. I mean, that is, um, that's eye opening because I mean, I was familiar with you, you know, so, and I follow comedy, you know, it's one thing for someone who watches comedy to not understand that that's kind of the truth behind what goes on. But for someone who follows stuff, I'm still sort of surprised that to hear you say, well, I don't know, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, because I mean, you're a name every, to me. 
yeah, and that's yay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think everybody's career is different. And, you know, um, there's people, I mean, it's funny when people are like, well, I've never talked to a celebrity before. And I'm like looking behind me. I'm like, who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> like there's, there's different gauges of how people look at what I am and mm-hmm. what I am in the business. I mean, pe- most people know who I am in the New York community. I have a little bit of a say in the, you know, the DMV, like the DC, Virginia, Maryland area. I'm there a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I make a name for myself in LA and London, but you know, I always say like real success is like my parents know who you are. My parents know who Jim Gaffigan is. Right. My parents know who Sebastian Maliscalco is. Like, but my parents, I mean, some stuff they're not going to know. Like my parents don't know who Dave Attell is. And that's for the Sure, and he's definitely (laughs) got a career and he's successful and doing well for Yeah, and that's also, like, not their brand. But, like... And then also, like, you know, there's some hot new music sensation that your parents have no idea who they are, you know? and like Exactly. And the truth is, is I don't know if I need to or even want to be a Jim Gaffigan. Mm -hmm. I very much would be fine... I mean, I guess Christian Shaw is kind of famous, but I, I like the idea of being a writer and making my specials and mm-hmm. having my fan base and that and being I don't have a problem being a niche market. And to be honest, this is this is the time to be a punk band like yeah. this is the time to do it. Like you can have a Patreon, you can have a YouTube channel, you can have your Twitter followers. You can I mean, I make a pretty good living right now. And mm-hmm. I would say I average across all social media around the 7,000 people fan base. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it changes and, and it evolves, but if it never got higher than that, you know, I could still make a living as a writer. I could still make mm-hmm. a living what I'm doing right now. It's just about the idea that if I'm tired now at 32, God help what I'm going to be at 45. <laughs> Well, somebody figures it out by 45. (laughs) So, you know, I always kind of feel like if someone else has figured it out, then I can take a tip from them. Yeah. And people have figured it out. You know, it's I think that is it is good for people to know what making it is for them, because when people don't. And I heard John Mayer say this. He was saying that he that he was he was talking about how this was a couple years ago, but he was saying it if you sell a million copies of your record, then that's a big deal nowadays. Uh, And he said, there are people who will sell a million and they are still just sort of not sure about their career. And it's like, you just sold a million. And it was because they hadn't defined for themselves what making it was. And so I, I think there's some people who... Uh, as you were saying earlier, they some people want fame, some people want money. But if you are chasing fame, you're going to have a tough time. If you just want to be able to take care of yourself, that's very doable. Yeah, and it's also artistically, what are my goals? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm... That should be most important, right? I mean, truthfully, I'm, I'm happy about what I do. I mean, right now, I would say the only goal artistically is to have access to more people hearing what I do. And and being able to do more with those things. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm at a submission web series, you know, album level. And I would, I would like to be writing for TV. I would like to, um, have more, like, 
in the last couple of years, more people have seen my work. I've auditioned for more things. I've had more meetings than I can keep track of, but it's each level takes a harder and harder hit to get to the new one. And it's, Mm. it's a climb. And so with that climb, you start to be like, Hmm, do I really want this? If I'm going to spend this much time working to get these people to see this script or work on this project or do this, is this something I really want to spend my time doing? Hmm. Can you explain what you mean by the climb gets harder as each new notch is made or yeah so I mean it's like it's like anything so like I was a gymnast when I was a kid I did Mm -hmm. gymnastics until I was 14 years old and you know in the beginning it's just about can you walk a straight line can you walk on the balance beam without Mm -hmm. falling Mm -hmm. but then it's can you do a handstand on the on the balance beam can you walk on your hands along the balance beam can you do a backflip on the balance beam so it used to be you know when I was four it was just don't fall off the very <laughs> and then it, it's like now do a double flip and if you mess it up your coaches are like what's wrong with you have you not been practicing and like remember when it was hard for me to walk like why is nobody impressed <laughs> but it like yeah. each thing gets exponentially harder and yeah. takes more experience and confidence and hours and emotion so you know to go from being an open micer to somebody gets guest spots mm-hmm. is a jump but it's a doable jump I think even people that are okay at it can do that. And then Mm -hmm. guest spots to paid work was a jump, but it was, you know, I was able to do that pretty quickly for, Mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes. Then it's from, and that's just in the city. And then there's, Mm -hmm. you know, getting paid to host, getting paid to feature, getting paid to headline, headlining bigger rooms, headlining theaters, um, you know, writing a web series, writing a a pilot, writing a full script, being a staff writer, writing your own sitcom, being the star of your sitcom, Mm -hmm. you know, making a movie. Like there's it, all those things, each of those steps, depending on which one is a value to your value to your goal of you, there's more gatekeepers, there's Mm -hmm. more expertise involved, there's more pressure, there's, um, um, more people's, other people's careers that are dependent on it. And it it's, you no longer are just a girl at 16 telling jokes about your cat to four drunk people. You now have a network that, you know, is going to air this to millions of people that want to know what you're going to bring to the table and make sure that it's perfect and that it's going to be successful and that they're putting money behind the right person and, and, and creative outlet. So each thing puts both more pressure on you, but also puts, um, um, it's, it's no longer, do I think this is good enough? It starts to be, do other people think this is good enough? Mm. And how do you stay fresh artistically and, and doing the type of artistic work you want to do and yet still appease those people? Because it does seem that when some people, when they get to a certain level of success, uh, whether they just get lazy with their artistry or they just have to feed the machine, so to speak, uh, that they have to put out something that, you know, isn't what made people fall in love with them to begin with, but it's what all of the people in the system said you had to do. You know, it's kind of like a big band uh, making a junk pop song because the label wants a lead single and that sounds like a lead single you know like it's not a good song but it's and so how do you find that balance because the more successful you get the more 
you have to put out that kind of stuff that, well, everyone likes this, and this is what everyone around me needs me to do. Uh, I mean, because- luckily, I mean, luckily and not luckily, little of that pressure has been on my side. I mean, the most pressure I got was um, people really liked my joke, feminist expositions, and. Mm-hmm. Somebody wanted me to come out with a book with it, and America's Got Talent wanted me to make a clean version of it, and there's all this kind of, you know, somebody wanted me to do a calendar, like all this stuff, and I mean, I like the joke, I'm proud of the joke, and mm-hmm. you know, if you know, it's at a half a million views on YouTube right now, it had millions of views on Facebook. Um, I, it's still a part of me and something that, um, you know, I hope more people see, but. I, I write jokes. I polish jokes. I do them for a bit. I put them on an album and then I move on. Yeah. I mean, truthfully, I'd like to think this is true, but I'm, I'm growing every year. I read a lot of books. I meet a lot of people. I make Mm -hmm. a lot of mistakes. I've hurt a lot of people's feelings. I try to appease those people. I try to be a better person. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I try to have new experiences and who I was, my last album, which was not even released a year ago, it doesn't even feel like who I am anymore. And definitely the jokes I wrote my previous album and the jokes that never even made albums, like all those people are still a part of me, but they're, I in some ways understand the old version of myself, but I try really hard not to continue to stay that version because... Yeah, you don't want to be defined by something that's old for you. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, for me, I don't have many people putting pressure on me because I really do mostly work for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I have weekends where I work for clubs and the, the goal is to do a good show, but I want to put on a good show. Um, and I mean, honestly, right now I, I don't have many people asking much of me or telling me much to do. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had that pressure, but I know from friends and from watching it myself, I mean, you know, you're, you spend your whole life being able to do this at your own pace and then things start to kind of roll pretty quickly. When people want something from you, you don't have six months to give it to them. And, mm. you know, you're not just appeasing 400 people in a comedy club. So, and money, like I said previously, money is involved and people want to know, People don't want to take risks the way they used to. People don't have the same money in show business like they used to. So, I mean, the thing that I've been a big proponent of is creating as much as I can while being pretty obscure Mm -hmm. so that when things do happen, you're not washing, you know, kind of watering down your content or rushing through your process to appease a deadline that was never something you were capable of doing in the first place. Um, it takes me about a year and a half to write an album. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's with no pressure and doing it in my own time, but at the same time as quickly as possible, because I wanted to do the fringe festival at the time or Mm -hmm. put out an album at the time. And I would say, I mean, maybe I could trim a couple months off that, but for the most part, I think an hour, I mean, a year and a half is is just about the right time to create an hour, polish an hour, feel good about an hour, mm-hmm. and then try to put it on tape. And then the other thing is I don't want it to take longer because then the jokes I wrote two years ago were boring to me and they sound <laughs> rehearsed. And, and like I said, I grow as a person, so I might not even relate to them. So it's this disconnected mm-hmm. hour for me. Mm-hmm. So there's things that I've learned about myself that I hope if more opportunities and success come my way that I don't lose that foresight. And, you know, you hear stories about Seinfeld 
being asked to do a late night set and being like, I'm not ready. You know, I'll let you know when I'm ready. Like there's, there's people that do have the emotional, um, and creative intuition to know, to really put set boundaries. And And the, I guess the power as well. I mean, you know, Seinfeld can say, uh, I'll do it when I want. (laughs) I mean, but this was like in the 80s he was talking about, like, you know, the Tonight Show was this make or break thing and they wanted him and he felt like his set wasn't ready. And so he waited until he was ready, which is like a pretty brave thing to do when there's so many people vying for that spot and most people don't even have the opportunity. And who's to say, you know, I would be scared to do that. Seriously, because I'd be scared to do that with a booker now because bookers lose their job just as Mm -hmm. quickly as other people and so you have a dude being like i want you to be on this show and you're like how about in three months and then that guy doesn't have a job anymore and the new guy's like i see it so there's i mean to me that's Mm. that's a level of confidence that i in some ways hope that i have but in other ways Mm. i'm just trying to be ready for most opportunities because you know depending on how you would look at my career i've i've had the luxury of time and being Mm. ready and it's good to want to be ready, you know, because I think I heard, I don't know if it was Jay Leno telling it himself, but there's an understanding that I got from a story that Jay Leno, the first time he did The Tonight Show was a huge, huge moment. He did really well. He killed. And then the second time he went on, he did, he did well, but didn't kill the same way. And the next couple few times he went on, it, he just wasn't doing as well because he had used all his a material the first couple appearances and uh after having one or two bad spots he was invited back but not when johnny was there it was always when johnny was away and they had a guest host and it, yeah. he, he felt like he got kind of burned you know like he it was smart for for seinfeld to say ah no <laughs> not not yet give me a give me a little bit but there's, I mean, I think there's different types of people. There's the ones right. that, that, you know, are able to focus on what they want right now. And then there's people that are able to focus what they want in five or 10 years or mm-hmm. their full career or whatever. And I mean, in some ways, I think I'm fortunate that I've always been a long-term thinker and will not make those early sacrifices because I know I'll have to pay for them later. Right. And I guess it's also good to realize that things aren't going to be coming to you only when you're ready. True. Absolutely. It's it's definitely going to be, uh, well, I got to get ready <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes. Absolutely. And, then... and some of the work that we're doing right now is to, it's like going to a gym. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know when the race is going to be, but I know that I need to be in the best shape so that I can do it. Yeah. So I think a lot of my discipline in writing, creating, um, coming up with ideas, you know, um, taking meetings, all that kind of stuff is hopefully preparing me for, you know, what may happen in the future. And mm-hmm. you don't know. And I, I've, I've seen it in baby ways where there's there's things I've worked on five years ago that I'm like, oh, if I didn't work on that, I wouldn't have been prepared for this experience. And, wow, that's true. I mean... I think there's, there's, I'm fortunate that I, I mean, the, the probably correct term is that a a workaholic, but I'm fortunate (laughs) that I I don't really rest much. And when I don't have the, 
random times in my career where I didn't have much going on. It wasn't like, oh, nothing's happening. I'm just going to watch TV. It's always like, oh, nothing's happening. Let me create something and make work for myself. That's good. That's really amazing that you're that you are that disciplined. What goes into that discipline? Um, I think I'm always I mean, there's I feel like there's two types of people in show business in general, which is the ones that easily fit into it already and the ones that have to make space for themselves. Okay. Um, I always like to use both of those. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think of somebody like John Mulaney, not okay. going to say he doesn't work hard, not going to say he's not talented. I think all those things, but I think, yeah, it, doors opened up pretty easily for him. He has like an old timey voice His <laughs> the, how, you know, how he writes a joke and talks about things isn't so mind blowingly different. Um, he's a hard worker. He's talented. He's, you know, looks kind of common. I'm not, all this sounds like I'm putting him down, but in a lot of ways he's, <laughs> there's nothing really new about him. He's a really, really great writer, mm-hmm. really yeah, talented guy yeah. that comes in a easily digestible, already been here kind of package. Okay. So of course he can seamlessly walk in mm-hmm. rather than when you think of somebody like, I mean, I always like to use like a Danny DeVito you know what I mean? Like he's not, he doesn't look like Brad Pitt. You no. know, you're not really sure what to do. He doesn't look like someone's dad. He doesn't really look like, you know, someone's brother or best friend. He's not a leading man. You know what I mean? He's this short, okay. stocky, weird character actor that, you know, he had to kind of pave his own way. Right. So it's the difference is sort of, uh, Oh, we need someone that can do this, this thing that's been going on for a while. Oh, John Mulaney can do that. And then with the Danny DeVito, it's, wow, that guy's interesting. We don't really have a space for him. Let's make some room for this guy because he's interesting. Yeah. And then sometimes people don't make room because you're a risk. So you have to make mm. your own room. So, mm. you know, the the famous Rocky story is that he wanted to be an actor. Nobody gave him that opportunity. He wrote his own script and made himself the yeah. lead. People do not know that that Sylvester Stallone. Some people know, obviously, a lot of people know, but there's some people who don't realize that Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky, and he's written yeah. a lot of his movies. Yeah, because nobody was giving him the opportunity because he didn't sound or look like what you would put right. as a as a person. So, I mean, David Tell is pretty notorious for making his own opportunities, and you and you look at. What he does, it's very him. He's mm-hmm. hosting porn awards and <laughs> insomnia. And like, you know what I mean? It's like right. it has clearly has a market. He's proved that there is a market. He has such a huge and loyal fan base. But he created that fan base and he made that loyalty. And he opened up these opportunities with mm-hmm. the stuff that he wanted to talk about and what he wanted to create. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I haven't had... I have when I was younger, things opened up a little easier, but I don't think I was both mature as a person or a comedian to completely utilize those opportunities. And now, you know, from my late 20s to my early 30s, it's about a really knowing what I want and creating my own opportunities when the only thing that made me all that unique was that I just started young. What happens Mm -hmm. when you're not technically young anymore? And um, interesting. I mean, I'm fortunate. I still look like I'm like 21. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I have, you know, the anger of a 32 year old. So, <laughs> you know, people people realize pretty quickly that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's about working on stuff that I'm passionate about and I'm excited about and opening up those doors for myself and creating my own opportunities. So, I mean, most of the scripts I've written and the stuff I've wanted to create, it's not there. Mm-hmm. So you, you make it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, The Simpsons is a great example of that. There was no adult cartoon until The Simpsons. And now most people are like, yeah, some of the best shows out there are adult <laughs> cartoons. You have South Park uh-huh. and yeah. Rick Morty and, you know, um, yeah. Family Guy and what have Bob's you. Like, Burgers, yeah. As, we... There's a millions of it. But, you know, before it was like cartoons are for kids and nobody mm-hmm. else watches them. And then The Simpsons was like, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it was it was also just like a little segment on the Tracy Ullman show. And mm-hmm. that, you know, like it was this 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 little thing because it was who thought that would have been something. Yeah. That adults would have wanted. Yeah, that's true. That's that's all uh, good stuff for people to think about and consider who are themselves trying to approach a career in comedy because, you know, there's an art gallery, maybe a couple, down the street from where I live, and you see them all over the place, and I'm always thinking, how are they making a living? But these guys are doing well. You know, like, some of yeah. them are doing really well. Uh, of course, there's some artists who are like, this is my retirement hobby, and I'm not doing, I'm not making a bunch of money. But at the same time, I mean, this guy who's down the street from me is doing, he has to be doing pretty well for himself. Yeah. And, you know, how do people do it? You know, like people, when you tell your family that you're going to go into this kind of work, they'll only think of the huge names and the huge success stories and say, well, how are you going to do that? How are you, you know, you can never do that, but you don't have to be, no one knows the name of the guy down the street for me, but he's again, doing well for himself. So, you know, it's really important to, for people to consider what it takes as an artist to stay driven, to be disciplined, and then also to understand how it all works. Like, it, you don't have to be as successful as Jerry Seinfeld to matter in comedy, yeah. you know, to, to matter in your own life. Yeah. And it's also, you know, your reasons for getting into stuff. Like, I mean... I mean, the best thing I've done for myself is go to therapy because, you know, I probably didn't get into this. I mean, I know I got into this because I just wanted it to be funny, but I, mm-hmm. I know I'm, I didn't get into this with the, the clearest of goals and the most honest of expectations. But I, I can look at what I'm doing and go, I just want to be proud of what I do and, and connect with people and the more people I connect with and the more truthful I'm being and funny I'm being for myself, the more I have an impact. And that impact mm-hmm. doesn't have to be, you know, world renowned, but that impact can be 10,000 people. That impact can be yeah. half a million people and it can still be a worthwhile impact. Yeah, absolutely. You started at 16. It was a couple years after you had stopped doing gymnastics what was the thought process in the moment of saying, hey, mom, dad, I want to go do stand-up comedy in the city? I um, I discovered stand-up, I think, when I was like 13 or 14. And mm-hmm. I, I always wanted to be funny. I was very shy. I wouldn't even think most of my friends or family would say I was a funny person. Mm-hmm. They would mostly say I was annoying. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody has changed that either. 
Um, <laughs> but I just knew I liked it. And I would watch like Sandra Bullock and like these mm. funny actresses be funny. And I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a funny actress. But there was, I could tell that I wasn't like crazy about acting. Like it still didn't feel like something I wanted. And then I saw stand up and it just seemed to be exactly what I wanted. Like mm -hmm. I could write these jokes. I would perform them myself. It was really simple. It was really like concise. I was already reading and I liked reading and I was just, I'm a very simple person and I just kind of fell in love with the art form. Mm -hmm. So at 14, I just started like writing. Like I was just like, I was always kind of writing like little essays and funny stories, but there was something about writing these jokes that was like really therapeutic and an interesting challenge for me. So I started mm. like telling my close girlfriends that I had in high school and they weren't even that close yet. It was like kind of almost a thing that started to make me closer to them is to kind of share almost the secret, which is like, you know, <laughs> I, I think when I'm older, I want to be a stand up comedian, but it was always this, I think when I'm older. And mm. I remember my friend Amanda, she worked at this like toy store, like down the street from high school. And this kid dropped out of high school and he was doing stand up. He was doing like open mics. But like in my mind, he'd been doing stand up for a year and he was a comedian. And oh my God, I have access to a comedian. So she bought me this book that he had recommended I read. I read that book and uh, I started writing jokes and I, I met up with that guy and I asked him if he'd look at my stuff. Keep in mind, it's an open micer looking at a kid that's never done, you know, a 17 year old <laughs> looking at a 15 year old's jokes and whatever, whatever. But <laughs> I was just so open to anybody helping me. And the fact that I didn't, I always thought I had to wait until I was like 25. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you could do it now. He's like, I started when I was 17. Why wouldn't you do it now? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I was just really closed off and drawn to this art form that opened me up. And I don't know if I logically understood that, but mm -hmm. I felt really suppressed, but I didn't want to be that person anymore. And this was the only thing that made me want to kind of come out of my shell. Mm. And I always kind of wrote, but then to have my writing there, there seemed like there was nothing scarier than people hearing my writing. And <laughs> At the same time, I really felt drawn to doing it. Uh -huh. And I always tell people, like, I kind of, I was a really sad teenager and really depressed and just, you know, drinking, doing drugs, like, not even like boys liked me, but I didn't like them back. And I was just like, probably never have a boyfriend. Like, just very, like, <laughs> nothing is ever going to work out kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. And comedy was the first so thing. So, definitely that, like, the mindset of a comedian. Yeah, of course. Already. Um, yeah. But comedy was the only thing that kind of gave me a little bit of hope and made me want to get out of bed and made me think that there was something positive on the other side. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I attribute a lot of even today, what makes me a more positive, well-rounded person is that I can filter my experiences through this comedy filter and nothing is a waste and nothing is a loss, you know. I hear girls all the time where they're like, we dated for three years and I was going to marry him and he broke up with me and what a waste. And I'm like, Hey, that's such a horrible way to look at what was hopefully at least a couple of years of good memories. Mm -hmm. But also I'll get like four or five breakout jokes out of that. And that'll be like a real, like that'll make it worth it for me. <laughs> 
but it is like something bad happens to me. I get like my new closer and I'm like, is it really that bad if I'm making mm-hmm. money off this experience? If I'm making people laugh, if I feel better because of how yeah. I changed it. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's therapeutic. Uh, very much so. I mean, I, in a lot of ways, um, I'm a different person because of comedy, because I don't think I would have made an effort to get to know myself mm. if I didn't have to sit down and analyze why I'm so angry at this moment or why this person makes me sad or why I think this is so weird. Like I sit with my thoughts longer and I talk about them much longer than the average person. Hmm. And I imagine like when we talk about discipline, I imagine your upbringing and all the years of training and gymnastics sort of pushes a drive to be disciplined. Because that seems like a pretty disciplined activity. Yeah, I mean, my my dad, my both my parents are very like organized, disciplined, do mm-hmm. what you said you're going to do kind of people. Mm-hmm. So I think just in general, because I think even now, I mean, clearly I don't have any kids, but like you can tell your kids whatever you want, and there's a lot of things my parents wanted us to do, but you're going to mimic them. Mm-hmm. You just are. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Uh, my. If my dad said he was going to show up somewhere at 5 a.m., he showed up there at 5 a.m. If my dad said he was going to finish this by the weekend, he'd finish his project by the weekend. My dad and my mother are both, this is what I'm going to do. My, my Even just watching my mom and my dad be on diets or train for certain exercise goals or whatever it is, they just always did it. So I think sports in general, I mean, everybody talks about how it's camaraderie and you make friends and you learn to work with others and you know, goals and blah, blah, blah. But I think seeing my parents be those people and uh, be just incredibly hardworking, um, disciplined people, but then to be in um, a sport like gymnastics where you are on your own, what you do is how you get further. You know what I mean? If you don't mm-hmm. practice your cartwheels and your back handsprings and your backflips, you're, you're not going to get better. Um, if you make excuses and you don't go to practice, like there's all these things that like real results come from real practice, which comes mm-hmm. from real rewards at meets and all this other stuff. I think seeing that stuff and being in something where I was completely relying on my own abilities probably set me up pretty well for something like stand up or the fact that I'm, you know, I ran marathons for many years. It's a very mm-hmm. solitary, you know, art form and pastime in all forms. I, I've become a very self-sufficient person <laughs> to the point where, you know, I probably should work better with others. <laughs> um, well, let's transition here. This has been a really good talk. And something that's coming to mind is what is something that people can do tangibly to try to approach this, get better, be more disciplined maybe. Uh, if someone's starting out, what kind of advice would you provide? Maybe it's reading that book that you were suggested to read. What was the book that you were, you read? I think it was the art of stand up comedy. It's actually out of print, but I'm oh. sure you can buy it somewhere. I, I really liked it. I still own it. Um, it was helpful. I mean, you'll, there's no, I mean, I would say that I read a couple of like how to books when I was a teenager, but really I just watched a shit ton of stand up, and I would just analyze the jokes that I thought were funny. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, I would say the psychology books I've read throughout my life and have been equally as helpful as 
some of the stand-up books. But, I mean, it depends on what kind of comic you want to be, and it also depends on what you're trying to say. I mean, I'm a very personal comic. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm a TMI in the sense that I'm giving you graphic details of anything, but I am... I, I do talk about crying on stage. I do talk about, you know, uh, health problems that I have and being dumped and, you know, struggling with my family and my brother being bipolar and mental illness in my family. Like there's things that most people don't talk about in their own family. And I tell strangers on albums that get broadcast on radio stations. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think, you know, you might not know going in what, kind of comic you want to be but you can kind of see who you enjoy and keep mm-hmm. in mind I I loved I'm very much a stand on stage and tell you my feelings kind of comic but I I love you know people that are running around on stage and big characters and you know um I would I guess I would be like of the philosophy brand of comedy but I very much love equally slapstick and silly comics and 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 people that are you know big and bold at the same time too it's just not who i am Mm -hmm. i don't know if my approach is the best approach i just read a lot (laughs) and watched a lot and then that's a good approach though i I mean yeah yeah you know writing a lot and analyzing and, and after you've watched a lot is kind of a lot of the work you know, I mean, you're you're trying to figure out and digest what something is, and once you've digested what, how something works and why it works, you can sort of implement it to your own writing. I mean, you're basically studying. Like right. I studied for a long time, and I still study. I mean, I I had a recorder. I knew recording my sets and listening back to them was really important when I started, and then I stopped for about ten years. Mm-hmm. And then I just started picking it up when I got an iPhone maybe like four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And I record every single set. I might not listen to every set, but I'll label it like new joke or this tag or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'll listen to certain sections. And being able to listen – because you have what you think you heard and then there's actual evidence. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a cliche at this point, but somebody will get off stage and they'll be like, man, I killed. And you'll be like, mm-hmm. I was there and I don't <laughs> think you did. So even myself, like I'll do a show and I'll be like, oh, I think that joke went really well. And then I listen back to it. and I'm like, it didn't bomb, but it wasn't great. And then (laughs) there's stuff that I didn't I wasn't even aware did well. And then I'll listen back to Mm -hmm. it and I'll be like, oh, that did well. Maybe if I put that there and did that there and get rid of that, that'll make that stronger. And I can do some real editing and self-analyzing because of these recordings. So Mm -hmm. for me, having almost the recordings is almost like a coach. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, having somebody there to guide you and this kind of memory bank. And so I would say my recordings, both in the beginning and especially now, are still probably the most important pro- part of my process. Awesome. What are some good goals that somebody could set for themselves if they're starting out? Um, honestly, getting up as much as possible, not judging the experience. So doing open mics. Um, just any, anywhere that you can get up, get up and who cares if it's three people like Mm -hmm. in the beginnings, especially it's just about being confident talking out loud. So Mm -hmm. who cares if there's three people? It doesn't really, I don't think that even matters. And then writing as much as you can. And I mean, it's a, it's a really vulnerable time in the beginning because you have what you think is funny Hmm. and you have the reactions of other people. 
And a lot of times those other people are other comics, so they're in their own heads or they're not paying attention yeah. or it's not a lucrative crowd. They're all drunk. They didn't mm-hmm. know comedy was happening, whatever the means. So in the beginning, it's a lot of kind of guessing and trying to find the right open audience. So you don't want just your mom who thinks everything you do is amazing. Mm. And then you don't want just drunk people aren't paying attention because they're not paying attention. So being able to just write as much as possible, get an honest gauge on what's happening, getting confident on stage because, you know, you could be a great writer, but if you're not confident and selling it on stage, nobody's going to listen either. And then from there, being able to have unique experiences to really gauge what progress you're making. Excellent. That's really good advice. Thanks so much, Liz. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I always like to be like, uh, if you do what I do, you'll be where I am. And I don't know if that's the best for everybody. Um, But I've made some mistakes and I've gotten better. I feel good about it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, she was great. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did enjoy it and want to see her perform live, guess what? You can. You can find dates on LizMeely.com. That's M-I-E-L-E. And she's going to be in the New York area soon, but she's currently in Cuba. She's got shows in Texas and Minnesota and Atlanta. She's going to be all over, okay? So just go to LizMeely.com. Check that out. Also, check out her albums. She's got two of them. She's got Mind Over Melee and Emotionally Exhausting. Both albums are available on iTunes, Amazon, and CD Baby. And you can find out more about us at thereitispod.com. You can also support us. That would be much appreciated. Just click on the support link. A couple of ways you can support us there. And also, a little thing about me. I did a podcast interview on the podcast, The Stories of the Upstate And it's a South Carolina podcast, so when they say upstate, they don't mean upstate New York. Uh, Went back home and did this great interview with Lloyd Ford, and he's great. You can get that episode in a couple of days. It's Thursday, and it's on iTunes and the Stitcher app, so check that out. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Fun new episodes coming up in the future. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.